Welcome to the Draw Shops Get Genius Podcast, where we talk to today's business influencers to pick their brain and pull out their genius. It's time to get genius. Hello, everyone, and thank you again for listening to the Get Genius Podcast. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. If you have listened to episodes before, thank you so much for continuing to listen. Um, today's an interesting, pretty intriguing interview about overeating and binging and stress eating and how to stop eating so much chocolate. Well, I don't know if I like that part, but you, it's, it's actually okay. We'll we'll talk about it. It's cool. Um, I'm talking to Dr. Glenn Livingston and he's a veteran psychologist and longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. And Dr. Glenn's work theories and research have been published in major periodicals. He Basically, his story is that he was disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer the overweight and or food-obsessed male. Um, And so he spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating, And he did this with work on his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Really, uh, most importantly, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison, he calls it, to a normal healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. And it might be something that you do think about. It might be something that you haven't thought about. Um, But we, we talk about a lot of good things like where does stress eating come from? Why do we do it? If you are somebody who does it, maybe you know someone who does it, um, the dangers of it, the, um, we, we go into, you know, the kind of the, the addiction of, of food. Um, and it's, he's got a really interesting journey and he's very transparent about it, which, which is awesome. And you just completely relate to him and it could be food. It could be something else for you. Um, but it's, it's really an interesting conversation about the brain and what he's learned from it and how we can reprogram that. Um, and really the, the ultimate thing is that it's not that complicated and we, uh, as humans and even in marketing tend to complicate it more than it needs to be. Um, basically ending overeating is not that complicated. (laughs) So he makes it really simple. Um, but yeah, we talk about all kinds of uh, interesting things that you you may just learn about yourself after, by the end of this interview. So um, take a good listen. Uh, you'll find out more about his book, which is called Never Binge Again, more about his his stories and all these years, what, what made him uh, really passionate about this um, and enjoy it. And as usual, we'll have, uh, links to everything at the, on the show notes and in the blog post, so you can find out more information about Glenn. Hello, Glenn, and welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me and thank, and hello yourself. <laughs> so I think I'm going to learn a ton today and I think our listeners are going to get to hear a different perspective on something that most of us think about. And um, I notice in the the world of entrepreneurs, there's there's a ton of information that we're being given in terms of you know how to eat, how to stay healthy, and um, you just have such a wealth of experience and knowledge. So 
If you would first, I'd love to have our listeners hear a little bit of your background and how you became this expert in stress eating and overeating and and how why it's such a big deal today in in our culture. Sure. Well, I'm I suppose you could always say I'm a psychologist first and foremost, but I'm I'm also a serial entrepreneur, so I can definitely resonate with your audience and I've actually taught um, marketing and advertising for a very long time. Um, but I, I was born in a family of 17 psychologists and psychotherapists. And wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. You, you don't want to come to the family reunion. <laughs> Everyone's analyzing everyone. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it, it, it's it, the funny thing is that nobody agrees on anything. It's just like any other family. Yeah. Um, but I, and I also, I never really learned how to fix things around the house. I can ask it how it feels, but I, I don't really know how to do any, um, you know, traditionally, um, I, I can't fix stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just can't. I, I'm psychologically oriented. Um, but I also had a um, rather serious eating difficulty as I was growing up. I didn't know it was an eating difficulty. I thought it was a superpower. Because I'm, I'm six foot four and I'm reasonably muscular, and I discovered that if I worked out a lot, maybe two or three hours a day, that I could just eat anything I wanted to all day long. You know, six, seven, eight thousand calories was really not a problem, as long as I did the workouts. Wow. And yeah, so I developed some really bad patterns back then. And when I got to be a little older, and you know, I was married at the time, and I had. Um, I had a lot of patience and responsibilities, and I was not able to stop eating, but I just didn't have the time to to work out for three hours a day. I was lucky if I found a half an hour or 45 minutes every other day at the time. Anybody who's been through graduate school for psychology or medicine knows what that's like. Yeah. And I just kept eating the same way, and I just gained weight and gained weight and gained weight. And worse yet, the mental obsession wouldn't go away because I knew that I was in trouble. I, I knew that, I mean, cardiovascularly, I have horrendous genetics in my family. Every male in my mother's side has a heart attack in their 40s. And the doctors were telling me my triglycerides look more like the national death than the blood test. And that I was going to die by the time I was 30 if I, 35, if I didn't um, do something about this. But But I just couldn't. And I would be sitting and obsessing about food while I was working with a suicidal patient or dealing with a couple that just had an affair and were at risk of divorcing and and all these high-risk situations. And being a psychologist was always very, very important to me. It's really the core of my identity. But I just couldn't be 100% present because I was thinking about the next time I could get to the deli and, you know, empty the contents of the first drawer in, into my mouth. And, and um I tried everything, like all of the traditional ways to, to cure it. I went to psychologists, of course, because I knew some of the best ones around New York City where I grew up. And I went to psychiatrists. I took medication. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. And there were pieces and parts that helped. And I don't regret doing it because it was a very soulful explanation, a very soulful exploration of, of life for me. And I think I learned a lot, but it, it didn't really solve the problem. Um, I also, you know, I, I had married a marketer and, um, 
And she introduced me to a lot of clients in these Fortune 100 companies, a lot of whom worked for Big Food. And I had um, I had learned a lot about doing psychological research, like how do you get the soul into the machine and really analyze it quantitatively. And so they wanted me to do all this research on how the emotional drive for purchase linked to their advertising and how could I prove that statistically without asking people directly. And so I had quite a career doing that for a lot of years. Um, and as a consequence, I knew how to do these large studies. And so I, I put together a large study of my own back in the days when internet traffic was really cheap. And over a couple of years, I had 40,000 people answer a inventory which is all about their satisfaction with their personal life, the troubles they had in their personal life, and the particular foods that they had trouble eating, you know, stopping themselves when they ate. Yeah. Like what, have they been, what have they binge on? And I figured that maybe I would find the answer to why I couldn't stop having chocolate and, and all sorts of other things. And, and I found three clear things in the study. They weren't gigantic associations, but they were very clear. One was that people who struggle with chocolate, they tended to be lonely or heartbroken in some way. And, you know, that kind of made sense from my perspective because I was in a relatively bad marriage and um, I was unhappy. And I, I went back to my mom and I said, is there anything from my history that would suggest that I run to chocolate when I'm unhappy? And she said that, although, although she was a little embarrassed, that... Um, <laughs> She was overwhelmed when I was a toddler. She was, my dad was in the army. They were threatening to take him to Vietnam. He was a captain. And her father, my grandfather, was missing. And she was just overwhelmed and depressed. And so sometimes when I come crying to her, she would point to this refrigerator on the floor where she kept a bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup. And I'm totally dating myself with that brand. <laughs> and she said, go get your Bosco. And I would go you know, suck on the chocolate syrup and go into a sugar coma. And you'd think that, wow, Eureka, you know, that's the match that struck the fire. Um, that's the cause. And now with that understanding, shouldn't I be able to stop overeating chocolate? But it didn't really work because there was this voice in my head that would say, you know, Glenn, you're right. Your mama didn't love you enough. And she left this big empty hole inside of you. And until you fill that hole with the love of your life, you're going to have to go right on binging. So let's go get us some chocolate. Yippee. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the same thing with the other clients I work with. They, um, turns out that people that struggle with crunchy, salty things tend to be more stressed at work. And people that struggle with um, soft, chewy, starchy things tend to be more stressed at home. You know, bagels and pasta and yeah. bread. Yeah. Interesting. But, but the same little voice was there saying, you know, let's just keep on binging until we can solve this problem, until we get a new boss or until we figure out our home life. We're was it like an addiction for you? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, I, I was one of those guys who felt like there was a gun to my head telling me to sit at the refrigerator and keep eating until, until it hurt. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I subsequently learned that there's probably an evolutionary mechanism that... Um, says if food is scarce for periods of time, then when it's available, we have to hoard it. And that's that's why you find so many people who struggle with binging 
are actually really good dieters and have gone through periods of serious restriction and lost a lot of weight and then gained it back. And I, I really identified with that also. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it turns out that it was the voice that I had to deal with to fix things rather than understanding my emotional history and what was eating me. Um, tell me if you want to intervene. I know I'm talking a lot, but I, I, I could tell you where the solution really was. Um, why don't I just do that? So, yeah. so, so after, this is when I was edging on 40 years old, I came across a guy named Jack Trimpey at Rational Recovery. I think it's rational.org, I think it is. And he works largely with the black and white addictions that you can completely give up, like drugs and alcohol and cigarettes. And what he said, essentially, was that the culture had the wrong attitude towards addiction. That we're all trying to love ourselves thin and, you know, provide more comfort for the addict. And But that neurologically, the way that our brains are set up, the seat of addiction is really in the lizard brain. And our identity is much more, our human identity is much more so in the neocortex or the later evolved structures of the brain. The lizard brain looks at something in the environment and it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? It's mm -hmm. eat, mate, or that's it. There's no love there. Right. It's, it's sociopathic all by itself. And since that's the seat of addiction, and that's, that's what um, I'll explain to you a little later how the food industry and the advertising industry really targets your lizard brain. But since that's the seat of addiction, if your paradigm, when you're standing at Starbucks and there's a big hairy chocolate bar on the counter calling your name, and you hear this little voice in your head saying, you know, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and a cocoa bean grows on a plant, so therefore chocolate's a vegetable. If your paradigm is, well, I really need to love myself more, then you're almost certainly going to open up to the lizard brain. What you really need to do is learn how to feel disdain or even a mild sense of disgust for the lizard brain at those moments of impulse so that you can have an unpleasant feeling for the moment, but wake up and recognize, oh my God, this is not who I am. This is not in accord with my longer term plans. This is not the diet that I'm on. This is not, um, this is not who I want to be around that food. Right. That takes a lot of, of, awareness <laughs> to be able to, to recognize that moment. It does. It does. And so here's what I did. Um, and this is a little embarrassing for a guy that's done tens of millions of dollars of consulting and seen thousands of patients. And it's kind of a sophisticated psychologist, but after all the years of like trying to be a detective, this is how I became a fireman instead and figured out how to put out the fire instead of figuring out who struck the match. I decided that I had to make a really clear line in the sand, um, which defined what healthy eating was for me 100% with no ambiguity. So for example, one rule might be, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. Very 100% clear rule. Yeah. And, and that way, if I heard something in my head saying that chocolate was a vegetable, I decided that was my, my inner pig that wanted that. My lizard brain, I called it my pig. And I decided that what it said, the rationalization it was giving me, whatever it would be, was going to be pig squeal. And I just decided that I don't, I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. I don't, I don't want the chocolate my pig does. It's squealing for the chocolate. I don't want it. I'm not going to listen to farm animals tell me what to do. And that's that. 
And as crazy as that sounds, it, it wasn't a miracle. It didn't all happen right away. I, I had to work with it and figure out different rules. And But it gave me those extra microseconds at the moment of temptation to remember who I was. And that's how I got over my addiction. That's how I, I lost about 60 pounds and my blood levels came down and I focused more on whole, fresh, natural foods and my health, you know, shot up and it all, it all came together. I kept a journal for a lot of years about all the crazy things the pig said and how I overcame that. And that's what eventually became the book and the book took off. And so that's, that's what I do now. And the book is called Never Binge Again. Yeah. Um, you talk about reprogram reprogramming yourself to think like a permanently thin person. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that and what that what does that even look like? Well, when you draw really clear lines in the sand, it becomes possible to completely separate your constructive versus your destructive thoughts about food. And this is just a construct. It's just a mental trick of mind, but it's really, really powerful. If I say I will never have chocolate during the week again, then I know that any thought that suggests that I might have chocolate on a Wednesday, either now or in the future, is part of my destructive or fat-thinking self. And And I find that the people who have lost weight and kept it off in one way or another have learned to identify those destructive thoughts. So I've really tried to codify a method in which you can do that permanently, where you can install an algorithm in your head that um, starts to pull apart your healthy versus unhealthy thinking about food so that you can make the choice to to act on the healthy thoughts and to ignore the the destructive thoughts. Um, And that's what I mean. That's what I mean. It's, it's, um, It's more about the thinking than the particular diet that you're on. My book is diet agnostic. You can support any diet that you want to follow. Um, It's more about how you organize your brain and your commitment to keep your destructive thoughts separated so that you have choices about them. Um, And you can become a permanently thin person. That's, that's, that's what I've discovered. That's what seems to work for me and for thousands of other people that are that are doing this. And does that mean that a person will never binge again, never overeat again? Well, I call the book never binge. It can. First of all, it can. And there are people who read the book and never binge again. Um, I call it never binge again because paradoxically, there are two separate mindsets you need to have when you are pursuing the goal versus when you're analyzing a mistake. Mm -hmm. See, um, what you'll hear in our culture is progress, not perfection. Try to focus on guidelines instead of rules. Um, And that's the right way to be kind to yourself after a mistake. You know, if if you touch a hot stove by accident, you're not supposed to say, oh my God, I'm a compulsive hot stove toucher. There's something horribly wrong with me. I might as well just put my whole hand on the hot stove. Right. Right. You're supposed to feel a little bit of pain to draw your attention to where the hot stove was, make some adjustments so that you don't, you know, accidentally touch it again and then go on with your life. It it turns out that the, 
excessive guilt and shame associated with making a mistake with food is actually the pig, and it's binge-motivated, because what the pig is trying to do is wear you down so you don't feel strong enough to not binge again. It, wa- it wants you to binge again right now. I want you to binge some more. And if you refuse to yell at yourself, Carol Munter taught me this, uh, if you refuse to yell at yourself after you make a mistake, it's very hard to continue binging. You'll find that you you stop overeating almost immediately if you refuse to yell at yourself and you genuinely forgive yourself. That doesn't mean you don't take it seriously. It doesn't mean you don't really take a look at what went on and, you know, do you have to move the bullseye in some way? Is there, you know, how are you going to prevent the mistake in the future? But um, it does mean that you understand that that self-castigation is ill-intended and destructive and it's something to let go. When you are pursuing a goal, if you think about how people climb mountains or how people win races or, or how an Olympic archer might aim at the bullseye, they aim with the complete determination and the intent of perfection. They purge all of the doubt and insecurity from their mind. And if you look at the archer, it's almost like they can see the arrow going into the bullseye before they even let go of the, of the, of the arrow. Yeah. If they don't hit it, they don't take all the arrows and shoot them up in the air or shoot them at the audience, right? <laughs> That's a great analogy. I love that. Yeah, it's so true, and this is so um, this is so powerful on so many levels. And I, I don't know if you know this, but um, my my business partner and I from, from the draw shop we we have a summit that we're doing, which is called Healing Addiction. And we're oh. talking with experts like you. I'd love to repurpose this interview, actually, <laughs> and let sure. people hear this because, I mean, it's just so powerful with the guilt and the shame that we put on ourselves or that other people will put on us when we do, you know, fall off the wagon of whatever it may be, whether it's eating, smoking, um, gambling, whatever it is. And it's like that. It's true. Once you feel that guilt, it's like, I might as well just like blow everything up. (laughs) You know, it's like, but that's not really going to work. If you actually look at it as it happened, that's it. We accept it and let's move on. You're not going to blow everything up. Yeah. If you accidentally chip a tooth, it's a serious event, but you don't go get a hammer to bang the rest of them out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just, I love that whole analogy. Um, Summer, if I could just say one more thing about it, just to complete the Olympic archer's analogy. If if the archer misses, they get up and aim again. And if if you keep getting up and aiming again at the bullseye, as long as you know exactly where the bullseye is, you you have to get better because neurologically we're set up to learn. Right. And if you you do something over and over and over and over again and with really clear intent, then you have to get better. It's 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 a fait accompli. Yeah. So true. And it's not, it's not just a, you know, start here and finish here. (laughs) There's a, there's a path there. And if you get so overwhelming when people just think I have to wake up tomorrow and never have chocolate again, you know, (laughs) um, I'd love to talk about speaking of that, how I know that you said you are, um, you support any kind of diet or food plan that somebody has, what about the person who's so overwhelmed with so many different, you know, there's paleo, there's, um, you know, no carbs, there's slow carb, there's vegan, there's just so many different things. And each one claims to be, you know, the absolute best, um, eat meat, don't eat meat, all of that. How do, how does somebody actually 
commit to something or, or plan something that's right for them? Well, um, that is a fabulous question, and I, I've got two answers to it. Okay. The first answer is there's virtually no doctor or expert or nutritional expert in the world who's going to tell you that your problem is you're not having enough sugar and flour, right? Yeah. And so if you want to make an improvement to your health, you can start to get some of the poison out of it. Maybe we all disagree about what the actual healthiest thing is to eat. And, you know, I'm personally a whole foods plant-based person and a lot of people are paleo people. And so, you know, I'm going to be busy eating vegetables. You're going to be busy eating meat. And, but we can, we can all agree that, you know, we shouldn't be loading ourselves up with all this sugar and flour. And, and, and so perhaps can make one rule, and it doesn't have to be sugar or flour, but whatever whatever the biggest poison is in your diet that you're confident is a poison, how are you either going to eliminate it or moderate it? Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I, I, I actually like when people begin with one rule, and maybe they're not going to lose a bunch of weight right away if they do this, but they're going to restore their sense of power and hope and enthusiasm. They're going to see that they're not powerless over these substances. Um, they're going to learn how to structure their mind in a way to take control and take responsibility back. And once they know that they can do that, then a lot of the diets that seemed impossible before suddenly seem within the realm of possibility. And I find that most people have had an experience with a way of eating that they really think is best for them. I, it's actually rare that I come across a person who says, I don't really know how I should eat. I, I'd say 98% of my clients come to me and say, you know, Glenn, I, I really want to eat paleo or I really want to eat vegan. It's the way I feel best. I just have trouble sticking to it. Um, and so starting with one rule is a really great way to develop a sense of control and power so that you can then add more rules and stick to it and Usually for a month or so, I have people just work with one role so they're not overwhelmed and they get that sense of power back. The si Go on, I'm sorry. I was going to say, and you have you have four categories of, of rules. And so is, is that what you're referring to, sticking with just one of those at first? Yeah. Well, not, not, yes, it will, it will be a rule which falls into one of those four categories. And those oh, are just suggestions. You. Those right. are just suggestions, by the way. The categories are... Um, Nevers, like I'll never have chocolate again. Conditionals, let's, I will only ever eat chocolate on weekends again. Um, always, like I'll always have you know, two big glasses of water the first thing in the morning when I get up. And unrestricted, it's like I can have as many unsauced vegetables as I want to at any time. And that, that last category so that people don't feel like they're starving. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, whatever rules you set up, you have to make sure that it's nutritionally and calorically complete. I don't think people should try to lose weight quickly, especially if they have a history of binge eating. I think that it stimulates the binge eventually. A pound or two a week is fine. Um, and yeah, so so I do help people to develop, um, you know, sets of rules. I, I also have, um, I created a bunch of food plan starter templates that I give to people for free for every particular diet so they can see samples of the rules that they might want to incorporate. Right. What... What are you finding 
with people that do they want to stick to something and it lasts maybe for a week or two sometimes not even that long <laughs> um what do you find is is there is it does it have to do with the person or does it have to do with the diet that they're sticking to or the way that it's presented to them that they're not able to to stick with it well um okay I think that it's a little dangerous to, even though I'm a really proponent of claiming responsibility, I don't think people are powerless over food. And I I am kind of a critic of the 12-step programs that abdicate personal responsibility for um, a lot of the troubles. I also think it's dangerous to blame the individual in the society in which we live. And I I try to help people to go from feeling ashamed to feeling angry about what's happening because this is something I think I'm uniquely in a position to have viewed having done all the consulting that I did for, for industry and the advertising world. You know, there are billions of dollars spent to engineer these hyper palatable food like substances that have artificially concentrated forms of salt and sugar and oil and, um, starch and, you know, excitotoxins and chemicals and flavoring agents. Um, they, they are pressing your evolutionary buttons in a way that evolution didn't prepare you to deal with. And when your evolutionary buttons are short-circuited, there is research that suggests that mammals will engage, and we're a mammal, will engage in severe self-neglect. Um, and this is all done for profit. There's a series of studies in the late 50s and early 60s by Milner and Olds, two psychologist experimenters. And what they did was they they wired rats' pleasure centers. They actually put an electrode in the brain, and they wired it to a lever that the rat could press to stimulate their own pleasure center. And when they gave the rats these levers, what happened was they would ignore their survival needs to press the levers thousands of times a day. I mean... A starving rat would ignore food to just go press the lever. Mm. A, a nursing mother rat would abandon her pup to just go press the lever. They would crawl over painful electrical grids to go press the lever. And the studies were replicated in humans slightly differently um, with very similar results. And I don't think it's a very far stretch to look at the food-like substances that are being engineered into all these bags and boxes and containers and wonder why people are looking for love at the bottom of a, you know, bottom of a bag or a box, um, you know, and not really knowing what they're doing yeah. and engaging in severe self-neglect. So I don't think that we should be walking around ashamed or really blaming people. You know, the advertising industry sends five to seven thousand messages about food every year to us, and how many of them are about eating whole fruits and vegetables? Like, hardly any. Right. Um, you said yeah, earlier I, they're they're um, they're talking to the lizard brain. Yeah, I mean, this is all designed to target your lizard brain. Yeah. Um, you know, I was unfortunately a part of that 20 years ago. Um, you know, and, and I, people think advertising doesn't affect them, which is really sad because what the advertising industry knows is that advertising affects you more um, when you think it doesn't affect you because your sales <laughs> resistance is down. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I'm a proponent of powerful advertising. I think that advertising can be used for good also. And I think that 
ethical persuasion is um, not o- not only um, okay, but a responsibility of people who have ethical products and services to offer. Yes. Um, so I'm I'm not just saying all advertising is bad, but you know when it's when it's used to promote these things, which are perfectly legal. Like like for for example. I remember talking to the VP of a large food bar manufacturer, which everybody would recognize if I said it and then I would get sued. Um, but I remember talking to him and he took me aside and I said, Glenn, the way we made this really profitable, it wasn't selling until we took the vitamins out and we put all that money into making the packaging look healthier instead. And I said, so you, you mean you're telling me that it's perfectly legal and extremely profitable for you to make something look healthy as opposed to be healthy. And he said, absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's what's going on. And, and so you have that and, you know, you, you have these evolutionary buttons being pressed and then you have the addiction treatment industry saying, you're powerless over this, you can't resist, you can't hope to quit, the best you can do is abstain one day at a time. Um, you know, relapse is a part of recovery. And, and, and these messages kind of conspire to create the perfect storm where, Everybody walks around thinking and, you know, what, wondering why they can't resist, why they can't stop eating. And it's just, it's just how our society is set up. So, you know, the, the defense is to do some thinking work. Um, it takes a little work to think through what, what are your worst triggers? What role do you want these things to play in your life, right? Do you want to have chocolate on weekends? Do you want to have it during the week? Do you want to eat pretzels at Major League Baseball games and nowhere else? What role do you really want to play in your life? Make your decisions beforehand because willpower is clearly researched now to be a fatigable muscle. It's not like a light switch you have or you don't. It's more like the gas in the tank. You can only make so many good decisions each day. So if you make as many of your decisions as you can by creating these um, very specific rules that outline where your bullseye is and where the next rung is around that bullseye, really what you're doing is you're making statements of character that have made all your decisions beforehand. Um, it doesn't require any willpower not to take a $20 bill from the table at a diner, which a waitress hadn't come back to get as her tip yet, even if there's nobody around. Because as a matter of character, most people have defined themselves as not being a thief. And so that's not a decision they have to face. It doesn't wear down their willpower. Similarly, when you make statements of character you know, I, I'll ask people, could, could you stop eating chocolate entirely? They'll say, no. I'll say, could you become the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate? They'll say, hmm, maybe I could. If you, if you make these decisions beforehand, you obviate the need for willpower and um, you have a defense against the, the industries we're talking about. Ca- character trumps willpower and it takes a little bit of thinking work to develop your character, a little bit of practice to develop your character but you, you can absolutely do that. I love that. And I think it applies to so many things in, in our lives outside of, of food and stress eating. I appreciate this so much. It's such a great way to, to look at, at our brains and, and how we operate and the power that we, we do have ourselves and, and rid that whole guilt shame thing that obviously isn't, isn't working except sometimes maybe very temporarily. Yeah. Um, I'd love to send our listeners to find out more information about you and where they can find your book. Can I send them to neverbingeagain.com? Is that correct? 
Yeah, at neverbingeagain.com, if you hit the big red button to sign up for the free bonuses, you will. Um, I'll get you a free copy in Kindle Nook or PDF form of the book itself. Oh, fantastic. And I'll get you those food templates we talked about before. So there's one for paleo, vegan, point counters, calorie counters, macrobiotic, low carb, high carb, whatever diet you happen to be on, there's one that'll get you started. And probably most importantly, this whole philosophy sounds weird and maybe a little harsh um, when you talk about it in theory like this, but if you listen to it implemented in practice, it really is a very compassionate theory and you can hear, hear people's hope and enthusiasm being restored. And so when you sign up, I'll also send you some um, free recorded interviews that I did with people who allowed me to coach them publicly so you can hear how it works. And, you know, one of those stories will resonate with you. Oh, that's fantastic. So you get to actually hear somebody going through the process. Yep. Awesome. Well, this has been totally intriguing and my, my brain's all lit up and fascinated. So I'm definitely going to get the book. Um, thank you so much for, for sharing all that you did. Thank you, Summer. It was delightful. And if you let me know when this is published, I will, um, happily put it on my social media. All right. Absolutely. We will for sure. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks, Summer. Thank you for listening to today's Get Genius. You can learn more about The Draw Shop at www.thedrawshop.com, on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Your home for kick-butt custom whiteboard marketing videos. Your ideas come to life. Thanks for listening. Please share, comment, and make any suggestions for future genius guests. Oh. <laughs>